Welcome to Bible Answers Live, where you'll get honest answers to your Bible questions. Let's face it, it's not always easy to understand everything you read in the Bible. With 66 books and more than 700,000 words, the Bible can generate a lot of questions. If you'd like answers to your Bible questions, you've come to the right place. Now, here's your host, Pastor Jean Ross, Vice President of Evangelism for Amazing Facts. Hello friends, how about an amazing fact? In 2014, Alexis Martin was considered the smartest toddler in the world. When doctors tested her intelligence at three, she scored 160 IQ points. By the way, the average adult has an IQ of about 100. Her incredible intelligence was first noticed by her parents when, at one, she began to perfectly recite her bedtime story from the night before. By two, Alexis was able to read fluently, and at three, she had taught herself to speak Spanish from a language app downloaded on the family iPad. She also memorized every U.S. state, including their capitals, as well as learning all of the different parts of the human body, all of this before her fourth birthday. At three, Alexis became the youngest person to ever join the prestigious Mesa organization where to be a member you need to score within the upper 2% of the general population on an approved IQ test. She was recorded as having an IQ that was 99.9% .9 higher than anyone else of her age group. An incredible achievement for someone of any age, let alone a preschooler. King Solomon in the Bible would have also broken all records for having a high IQ. When the young king took the place of his famous father David, he felt inadequate. He told the Lord, I'm a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 7. When God asked Solomon what he would like, the king responded, Give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. God was so pleased with Solomon's request that he gave him not only great wisdom, but riches and honor as well. Did you know, friends, that God wants to give you a special supernatural wisdom? Stay tuned for more as Amazing Facts brings you this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, honest answers to your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, Call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's join our host, Pastor Jean Ross. Hello, friends. Welcome to Bible Answers Live. Pastor Doug is out of town this evening, but this is a live program, and we're ready to take your Bible questions. If you have a Bible-related question, the number to call here to the studio is 800-463-7297. That's 800-GOD-SAYS-463-7297. I'd also like to greet our friends who are joining us on Facebook across the country and around the world. You can also call in with your Bible question. You'd want to call the same number, 800-463-7297. Well, before we get to the questions this evening, it's always a good idea to start our program with prayer. So let's do that right now. Dear Father, we are indeed grateful for the opportunity that we have to open up your word and study together. And we ask your blessing upon this program. Be with those who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I open the program this evening by sharing an amazing fact about an incredible person, Alexis Martin, who has a very high IQ. Just amazing what she was able to memorize even as a toddler. And of course, the Bible speaks of King Solomon as having great wisdom, being the wisest man, the Bible says, who ever lived. Now, God wants each of us to have wisdom, a special kind of wisdom, not necessarily a wisdom that will help us score high on an IQ test, but rather it is a wisdom to determine and know God's will. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. Without a doubt, the greatest wisdom that anyone can have is the wisdom of knowing God, knowing his will for our lives. And yes, God will reveal his will, his plan, to those who ask. The Bible says we need to ask. Now the next verse, which is James chapter 1, verse 6, says that the one seeking wisdom needs to ask in faith. And so we ought to ask God in faith, believing that he hears and that he answers our prayer and ultimately, we want to know what is God's will for my life. We have a free book we'd like to send all of those who are listening, those in North America. It is a book written by Pastor Doug Batchelor entitled Determining the Will of God. And that is our free offer this evening. All you'll have to do is call our resource phone line. That's 800-835-6747. Again, that number is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the book called Determining the Will of God. If you're listening on Facebook or outside of North America on the Internet and you'd like to get a copy of the book, all you'll need to do is go to the website, just amazingfacts.org or .com, and you can download and read it for free, the book, Determining the Will of God. And again, that is the greatest wisdom that anyone can have. Well, friends, the phone lines are open. Good time to pick up your phone. Give us a call. The number here to the studio with your Bible question is 800-463-7297. And our first caller that we have this evening is David, listening from Wyoming. Uh, David, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, and thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. And your question this evening? My question had to do with, is there a biblical reference for the act of cremation? There's not a, uh, a command in the Bible that says whether someone can't be cremated. We do have an example in the Old Testament of Jonathan who was a, a godly man who was killed in battle and uh, his body was somewhat mutilated by the enemy and uh, some of his men came and took his body and they cremated it and then they buried him. But the tradition that you often find in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, was that of burial. Again, there's nothing wrong with being cremated because you have so many people, even in New Testament times, many Christians that gave their life many of which were burned at the stake for their faith in God. And in the resurrection, God is going to resurrect them. So he's not, uh, he doesn't need uh, any leftovers from this body to recreate. The Bible says these mortals must put on immortality. So typically the tradition of the Bible was that of burial. The reason being is uh, the Christian believed in the resurrection at the second coming of Christ and as a uh, demonstration of their faith, they would often bury their dead, uh, believing that when Christ comes again, they will be resurrected. Uh, but uh, the Bible doesn't say that you can't be cremated, nor does it say that you have to be buried in order to be resurrected when Jesus comes. Does that help? Okay, I, I appreciate that. All right, thanks for calling, David. We appreciate your call. 
Our next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, we have somebody who is calling from Pennsylvania. Maria, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Pastor Ross. Hi, and your question this evening? My question is in reference to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, um, where it states that Christ is coming in the clouds and every eye shall see him, including those that pierced him. And I'm a little confused because the ones that pierced him are the wicked dead. And so according to what I've read, the wicked dead are going to be resurrected in the second resurrection. So how is it that they're going to see him when he comes? And the first resurrection is going to be when the dead in Christ are going to be resurrected. And the ones that are alive in Christ are going to be raised up to meet him in the clouds. Right. And I had questioned someone about that. And they said, well, there's going to be a special resurrection for them. And I'm thinking, well, then that means there's three resurrections and those are going to suffer three deaths. And that would mean that Jesus is not merciful because he's resurrecting them. And then they resurrected to die, destroying them again. Right. Well, let me share. Let me share a little bit about that from the Bible, hopefully to to help. You're right. Uh, Revelation one seven. For those who are listening, it says, "Behold, he comes to the clouds." It's clearly talking about the second coming. Every eye will see him when he comes again. Then it says, "And those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him." What about this group that pierced Jesus? This is referring to those leadership at the time of Christ's crucifixion, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, as well as some of the leading Roman. Probably Pilate could be amongst that group or the soldiers that played a leading role in the crucifixion of Jesus. They are, according to this verse, resurrected to see Jesus come the second time. Now, that doesn't mean they saved, but they are resurrected. Why are they resurrected? Well, we have a clue in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. It's an important verse. Matthew 26, 64. This is where Jesus is standing and he is being accused by the high priest and he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and all kinds of accusations will be made against Christ, and they couldn't really find witnesses to agree. Jesus didn't say anything. He just stood quietly, and finally the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure thee by the Most High. Tell us, are you the Christ? And then Jesus could remain silent no longer, and he responded. And this is what he said, Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. So the high priest who was accusing Jesus, and Jesus didn't respond. Finally, when the high priest said, I adjure thee by the Most High, are you the Christ? Jesus could remain silent no longer. He said, if you want proof, you will see me coming in the clouds of glory. So there are those who are resurrected, just a small group, resurrected when Jesus comes. Because they asked for proof, Jesus will give them proof. Now, they are destroyed along with the rest of the wicked with the brightness of Christ's coming. And then there is the final judgment that takes place at the end of the thousand years. So in that sense, they do die three times. They died once, and then they are resurrected at the second coming. They die again by the brightness of his coming. And then the third death, which occurs at the end of the thousand years. But that's just a small group. The vast majority of the wicked... Uh, they die the second death at the end of the 1,000 years after the great white throne judgment. Does that help? Okay. Write down the verse. It's Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. Okay. 
Okay, thank you so much. You have a good night. All right, thanks for calling. Our next caller that we have is uh, Matthew. Matthew is listening in Sacramento. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hi, Matthew, you're on the air. Yes. You might want to turn your radio down in the background a little bit. I can hear an echo. Can you still hear it? I can hear you. Yep, you're good. And your question this evening. Uh, My question is, is where was the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament saints? And what was the difference in the way he worked in their life and the way he worked in the New Testament saints? Oh, okay, good question. Well, the Holy Spirit is throughout the Old Testament. Matter of fact, you read about the Holy Spirit in the very first chapter when it says, when God created the earth, darkness was on the form of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. We find Elisha asking for a double portion of the Spirit that was upon Elijah. And he received the double portion of the Holy Spirit. We have an example of Saul who was filled with the Holy Spirit and he actually prophesied. So, you know, the prophets, of course, in the Old Testament were filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and you've got Daniel and others. They were without a doubt inspired. You have John the Baptist. And the Bible says that he would be filled with the Spirit of God from his birth. So without a doubt, you do find the Holy Spirit Uh, In the Old Testament, you find it in the time of Christ, and then also in the New Testament. But there was to be a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles uh, to aid them in their work of taking the gospel to the world. And that you read about in Acts, the book of Acts, where they were assembled together in one accord. They prayed. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They were filled with power. They were given supernatural abilities to speak languages that they hadn't learned. And then the gospel began to spread out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has always been active in the hearts and the lives of believers right from the very beginning. Right. Okay, well, why did Jesus say that he had to leave in order for the Comforter or the Holy Spirit to come? There was a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit that God wanted to give, that Christ wanted the disciples to have. But in order for that special gift to come, Christ sacrificed. This, by the way, when Jesus made this promise, this is, of course, before he ascended to heaven. After the crucifixion and the resurrection, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he, as our high priest, stood before the Father. And it was through his priestly ministry that he requested a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. So Jesus says the special outpouring could not come unless I be or unless I return to my Father in heaven. Well, Jesus was to return as our high priest and represent our need and our request in a special sense after his crucifixion and resurrection. And of course, as a result of that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gospel went to the world. But also remember, Jesus, prior to the crucifixion, gave his disciples power to perform miracles, to cast out evil spirits, and all of that happened before uh, he ascended to heaven. So, the Holy Spirit was still active before Christ's ascension. Right. Okay, well, I have I have always often wondered just what the difference was in the way that the Holy Spirit uh, worked in the Old Testament saints versus the New Testament saints. But you, I mean, like you said, I know he's always been there. Sure. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit um, worked to draw people in faith to look forward to the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, the Redeemer. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit works within the heart of the believer to build our faith in the fact that Jesus did come, as well as to empower us to take that good news to the world. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is helping people to look forward. In the New Testament, it's helping us to look back and to believe the reality that Christ has come. Right. 
Okay, yeah, that does help shed a little light then on uh, the way I, my my perspective of it, you know. Yeah, that's a good question. We do have a book, Matthew, that you might be interested in or anyone who's listening. It's called Life in the Spirit. It talks about the Holy Spirit, especially the Holy Spirit and the Christian, and we'll be happy to send that to you, Matthew, or anyone who calls and asks. Call us on our resource phone line. That's 800-835-6747. And you can just ask for the book called Life in the Spirit. Again, that's 800-835-6747. If you have a Bible question, our phone line here to the studio is 800-463-7297. Our next caller that we have is Christine, listening, I believe, in Connecticut. Christine, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Hi, thanks for calling. And your question this evening? My question is, um, are we really in um, the time of revelations? And... um, is everything we're seeing really today um, showing us that we are in the time of Revelations? My question is really, um, is this what Revelations is? Sure, absolutely. Yes, the answer is yes. Now, the book of Revelation covers a, a long period of time. It begins with the first century, typically the Christian era. So it begins with the first century. John wrote the book of Revelation somewhere around 90 AD. He was the last of the 12 apostles. The others had already died. He was on the island of the Patmos, uh, an old man by this time, and he received these visions. He wrote them down, and that's what the book of Revelation is. So Revelation traces the experience during the Christian era of God's people. And so it begins with the first century, it goes all the way through to the second coming of Christ, and then even after the second coming of Christ, until in Revelation chapter 21, it talks about the earth being recreated. The final judgment scene, the earth is recreated, the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, all of that is yet in the future. So yes, we are living in the book of Revelation. If you want to know where we are a little more specifically, there are three phases. We have seven churches. We have seven seals and we have seven trumpets. And each of these different series of sevens cover the Christian era. We're living in the last of the seven churches called the Church of Laodicea. We're living in the time period of the sixth seal, which is just before the second coming of Christ. And we're living during the time of the seventh trumpet, which again is right close to the second coming of Christ. So if you look at all of these different aspects of the book of Revelation, Yes, without a doubt, we are living in what we call the last days. We're living close to the end of time. Oh, okay. And um, should we be afraid in any way of these last days or no? Well, you know, the Bible tells us that if we have faith in God, if we're a believer in Christ, uh, we don't have to fear. The Bible tells us perfect love casts out fear. So there are things happening in our world that is alarming. We have fires, we have natural disasters, we have conflict between nations and people. And all of these are signs of the end. The Bible speaks of it. Revelation speaks of it. And yet when we see these things as believers, we we need not despair. Uh, Rather, we should have faith in Jesus. He's promised to take care of us. As a believer, we have nothing to fear. He will see us through. Uh, the Bible tells us that God will protect us. He'll send his angels to watch over us. So as a believer, no, we need not fear. Rather, we should look up in faith, believing, wow, Jesus is coming soon. And there should be an urgency to share this good news with the world. Jesus is coming. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks for calling, Christine. Appreciate it. Next call that we have is Jerry listening in Kansas. Hi, Jerry. Welcome to Bible Answers Live. Thank you. Yes, and 
I've always heard that when Christ returns, we're going to meet him up in the clouds and he won't touch the ground. And if you hear stories of he's down at the lake baptizing or he's up doing miracles in the mountains and you got to come see him, just beware that that's not Christ. And I've heard Doug Bash say yes. tonight that he, you know, he's gonna, his feet are going to touch Okay, when does that happen? Well, first of all, if you look at Matthew 24, Jesus gives signs of his second coming. One of the things he says in Matthew 24 is, do not be deceived. There will be many false Christs that will come, and they will even perform miracles and and do signs and wonders. Jesus said, if somebody says to you, uh, look, Christ is in the desert, don't go out. Or if he's in a secret chamber, don't, don't go there. When Jesus comes, according to Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. It'll be a most glorious event. Christ comes in the clouds with all the angels. Now, when he comes the second time, according to uh, John chapter 14, if you look from verse 1 through to verse 3, when Jesus comes the second time, the righteous will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air, and we will go with Jesus to heaven. In John 14, 1 to 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. So when Jesus comes the second time, he comes to gather the righteous. He comes to gather the believers. He takes us back to heaven. We spend a thousand years in heaven. Revelation chapter 20 talks about this. Then at the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. All the redeemed are in the city. Jesus is in the city. Then it is that he sets his foot upon the Mount of Olives. You read about this in Zechariah. And the mountain opens up and forms a great valley, and the new Jerusalem comes to rest in the valley. All the wicked are then resurrected at the end of that thousand years for the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. At the end of that judgment, the wicked mount their attack upon the new Jerusalem. Fire comes and devours them. Then God creates a new heavens and a new earth. So for the second coming, Jesus does not touch the earth. The righteous are caught up to meet him in the air. But at the third coming, then it is that Jesus will set his foot upon the Mount of Olives. It will open up and form a great valley, and the new Jerusalem will come to rest. Right. Okay. And that clears it up. I thought he said at the second coming he was touching the Mount of Olives, and I, I got confused. But that clarifies it. Thank you very much. Yep, that's the third coming. Yep, we've got three comings of Jesus in the Bible. The first coming was as a baby. The second coming is as king in the clouds of glory. And the third coming, he comes as judge. And so we have the first, second, and third coming. We do have a study guide, Jerry, that uh, you might be interested in or anyone who's listening. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace. And you can actually call and ask for that. We'll be happy to send it to you or anyone wanting to learn more about this 1,000-year time period. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide called A Thousand Years of Peace. Our next caller that we have is Chase, listening from Houston, Texas. Chase, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And your question this evening. Yes, so I'm curious about uh, Revelation 16 the seven bowls of God's wrath. When does when does this happen in relation to Jesus' second coming, and how long does it last? Okay, good question. The seven last plagues are poured out just before Jesus comes. There is uh, an event that occurs just prior to the start of the seven last plagues, or the seven bowls, and that is what we call the close of probation. 
The close of probation is described in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 through to verse 3. It says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands, watch over the sons of thy people, and there will be a time of trouble worse than the world has ever seen. And then in Revelation chapter 22, when that time comes, Jesus says, He that's holy, let him be holy still. He that's filthy, let him be filthy still. So probation closes at that point. The righteous are protected after probation closes while this time of trouble occurs or the seven last plagues are poured out. So the seven last plagues fall after probation closes. God's people are protected during that time period. And you can also read in Psalms 91, I believe, where it says, no plague will come nigh thy dwelling. So God's going to take care of his people. At the end of this seven last plagues, then Jesus comes. As a matter of fact, the seventh plague is associated with the actual second coming of Jesus. How long will it be from the first plague to the seventh plague? Uh, the Bible speaks of a power known as Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. It represents this religious political power in the last days that wars against God's people. And it says that her plague shall come in one day. Now, one prophetic day, according to the Old Testament and also Daniel and Revelation, one prophetic day is about a year. So a number of Bible scholars feel that after probation closes and the seven last plagues begin to fall, it's roughly the time period of about a year until Jesus comes. Okay. Does that help? Thank you. Yes, it does. All right. Very good. Thank you for your call. We appreciate it. Our next caller that we have is Thomas listening in uh, Toronto, Canada. Thomas, welcome to the program. Oh, great. Um, can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Okay, great. Um, yeah, this is my question. Um, it's in regards to, you know, Jesus being God. Um, and this will be the question. Mary had to offer a sin offering for giving birth to Jesus, right? Yes. And, of course, there's a certain group of people that believe Mary never sinned, but most Protestants don't believe that. And so Mary was a sinner, but she didn't commit any sin giving birth because God said for them to procreate and bring forth life and obviously bringing forth Jesus was part of God's plan too. So my question would be, it says sin is a transgression of the law, but it doesn't say sin is the only transgression of the law because they also did sin offering for a person who was leprous, a person who touched a dead body. Sure. So basically what I'm just saying is sin can be non-guilty, like our sin nature, and also guilty sin. Is that true? Yeah, well, let me follow, let me respond to that. Yes, we're all born with an inclination towards self or selfishness. That selfishness is manifest in disobedience to God's commandments. So uh, we recognize not only the acts of sin that we might commit, but we also recognize the motive behind the sin. That's why when Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're guilty of committing murder. Now, of course, it's not exactly the same as taking the life of somebody else, but the principle is there. In other words, God wants a change of heart, and the new covenant promise is a change of heart, where God says, I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll write my laws upon your heart. So all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and uh, we're all in need of cleansing. We're all in need of that new heart experience. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 3, except you be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So there has to be a change of heart, and we speak of that as being conversion. Well, friends, you can hear the music in the background. It's not the end of the program. We're just taking a quick break, and we'll be right back with more questions. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return in a moment 
find out what the critics are raving about. Top scholars and theologians from around the country come together to reveal the hidden history of the Book of Revelation. With powerful reenactments and incredible visual effects, this 95-minute masterpiece brings to life the Book of Revelation like never before. Revelation is no longer a mystery. Get your copy today. Visit iTunes or afbookstore.com. Journey back through time to the center of the universe. Discover how a perfect angel transformed into Satan, the arch-villain. The birth of evil, a rebellion in heaven, a mutiny that moved to earth. Behold the creation of a beautiful new planet and the first humans. Witness the temptation in evil. Discover God's amazing plan to save His children. This is a story that involves every life on earth. Every life. The Cosmic Conflict. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is love, then what went wrong? Want to know God's plan for our world and solutions for your life's challenges? Beautifully redesigned, Amazing Facts 27 Bible Study Guides provide encouraging Bible-based answers to questions on healthier relationships, when Jesus will return, and much more. Prefer to watch while you read? Our brand new Prophecy Encounters DVD series makes the perfect companion set. Order your study guides and DVDs today by visiting afbookstore.com or by calling 800-538-7275. For life-changing Christian resources, call 1-800-538-7275. Every Bible question you have answered moves you one step closer to the fullness of God's will for your life. So what are you waiting for? Get the answers you need for a fuller, richer, more confident life. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's join Pastor Jean Ross for more Bible Answers Live. Hello friends, welcome back to Bible Answers Live. And as the name says, it's a live international interactive Bible study. And if you have a Bible question, we'd love to hear from you this evening. We do have, it looks like, just a few phone lines still open. So this is a good time to pick up your phone and give us a call. If you don't get through right away, don't give up. Just stay on the line and uh, one of our operators will take your call. The number again is 800-463-7297. And our next call is Andrew listening in Tennessee. Andrew, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi, Andrew. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ross. Thank you for what you guys do. Um, so my question is uh, regarding Mr. William Miller. In uh, the early or the uh, in the middle 1800s, he used the book of Daniel to forecast the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And he got it right, which everybody was like really fascinated with. And then he used also the book of Daniel to prophesy the cleansing of the sanctuary, which at the time he thought was the second coming of Christ. Um, 
Now, I remember hearing Pastor Doug say something about him uh, saying that it would be, it would be the 1844, but then there was a problem with the calendar. Is that correct? Well, sort of. Let me let me back up and give a little bit of the background for our hearers that might not be familiar with this. Um, back in the early 1800s, around 1830, a little before that, a Baptist um, preacher by the name of William Miller, based upon his study of the book of Daniel, came to the conclusion that 18... I'm going to put you on... on uh, just uh, mute you for a second, Andrew. We get a little background noise. Um, the the uh, preacher by the name of William Miller based on his study of the book of Daniel, in particular Daniel 8 verse 14, came to the conclusion that something significant was going to happen in 1844. Matter of fact, he recognized this as being the second coming of Christ. And the verse that was key to this was Daniel 8 14, where it says, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, William Miller recognized the principle in the Bible that one prophetic day is equal to one literal year. And we see that in the Old Testament in different places. We also see that principle in the New Testament. And so with some further study, he began to realize that the 2300 days of Daniel 8.14 actually represent 2300 years. He also, based upon reading in Daniel 9, realized that this 2300 year time period begins with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which occurred in 457 B.C. So based on that, he did the math, and the number ended up around 1843, 1844. Initially, it was 1843 because they didn't account for the year, or they put in a year zero there, but when you go from B.C. to A.D., it goes uh, 1 B.C. and then directly 180. There's no zero year. Um, but they thought that the cleansing of the sanctuary that was spoken of here in Daniel 8.14 was the earth, and the cleansing of the earth would occur when Jesus comes the second time. Now, they got the time period right, but what they got wrong was the event. This wasn't a cleansing of the earth by fire, meaning the second coming of Christ, but rather there was a special work of cleansing that Jesus was going to do in the earth amongst believers. And we began to see tremendous truths being brought to light around 1844. There was a great religious awakening and revival that occurred not only in North America, but also in other parts of the world. And there was a renewed interest in studying the prophecies of the Bible. So they didn't get the event correct, but they got the timing correct. And also, if you look in Revelation, there are some time periods that actually refers to the fall of the Ottoman Empire under the various um, trumpets. And um, based on their reckoning of time, those events did occur. Does that help a little, Andrew? Uh, yes. Actually, the, the, yes, uh, that, that actually helps a lot. But the question that I had was actually regarding um, he got the Ottoman Empire uh, fall correctly. Yes. Um, and I'm not saying that he didn't get the 1844 date correct. What I was wondering is if they accounted for the year zero prior to him forecasting the fall of the uh, Ottoman Empire. Okay, yeah, the 2300 days was already pretty much established, at least it was presented, uh, prior to um, further study of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. But in 1843, when things didn't occur as they thought it would occur, and be people began to question their interpretation of the time period, then it was, it wasn't actually William Miller, but... Uh, another Millerite believer by the name of Josiah Lynch, who really was the one that studied the trumpets and brought to light the idea of the Ottoman Empire um, surrendering to the Allied powers, or at least the powers of Europe, the Protestant powers, and that did occur as predicted. And so that gave 
sort of evidence to the principle of one prophetic day is equal to one literal year. Okay. Okay. I, it was just about the year zero or, or the Gregorian calendar. Yeah. No, it didn't affect anything related to the Gregorian calendar. The only thing is that the year zero, when you go from BC to AD, is not there. It just goes 1 BC to 1 AD. Thank you very, very much. You're welcome. Thanks for calling, Andrew. Our next caller that we have is Robert, listening from College Place, Washington. Robert, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor Ross. Hi, Robert. I just have a, hopefully, a pretty easy question. Um, Hebrews uh, 4, 8, I believe. Yes. It, talk, it talks about uh, there being another day of rest. And I, um, I'm guessing that's not Sunday, but I thought I'd ask. Uh, speaking of another day, it says... Uh, yeah, let me read it for those who are listening. Um, I think you're referring to Hebrews 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. Is that what you're referring? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. Yes, the context of the verse, just to kind of give you a little bit of the uh, the background here, um, what Paul is doing, we believe Paul was the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews, he is drawing an analogy for, of the children of Israel going up and entering into the promised land. And he equates entering into the promised land as entering into rest. And he uses that as a symbol of the spiritual rest that believers can have in Christ. So after talking about how that the children of Israel had come up to the Jordan River, about ready to go into Canaan, but because of unbelief, they were unable to enter into the rest of the promised land. They ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But then Paul also makes the analogy that it wasn't a physical rest that God was truly wanting to give Israel, but it was a spiritual rest found in Christ. And when he says, talks about another day, he's referring to a quote that David makes in Psalms. And of course, David lived a long time after Israel had entered into the promised land. And he says, it wasn't just their entry into the promised land that was the rest that God wanted to give them, but there was another rest that he wanted to give believers in Christ. He also brings an analogy with the Seventh-day Sabbath as being a symbol of that rest as well. So that's what he means when he says another day. It's not some separate day, but he's actually referring to, as you'll read, talks about the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath as being a rest for the people of God. So the another day is is the spiritual rest, you're saying? Yes. The other day that he's referring to is, in other words, it says if Joshua, who led the children of Israel into the promised land, if he would have given them the rest, the spiritual rest that God really wanted them to have, then David wouldn't have talked about another day for rest for the believer. So he's saying there is a broader rest that God wanted his people to have, a spiritual rest, and he connects that spiritual rest with the seventh-day Sabbath. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Good question. All right. Appreciate it. Next caller that we have is Edward, and he's listening in Bronx, New York. Edward, welcome to the program. Thank you. I have been having problems with Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. Okay. And I was thinking, I'm thinking it's a hard saying of Christ. And also he's saying, repent, lest you perish. And I'm thinking, even even you repent, that doesn't guarantee that something bad will not befall you. So what's going on in those verses? All right, good question. Let me let me give a little of the background of the verses here for those who are listening. Um, there was, an, occur- there was a, an actual historical occurrence that took place at the time of Jesus where there was... Um, some of the Galileans who Pilate had put to death. And uh, the disciples asked Jesus about this. 
And they asked, were these greater sinners than the rest that this happened to them? And then Jesus responded and said, well, this is verse 2. Do you suppose that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? Then he says in verse 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. And then he gives another illustration about 18 men upon whom a wall fell when they were building this tower and they were killed. So the Jews believed that if something bad happened to you, it was because you were a great sinner. Jesus wanted the disciples to realize that what happens in this life, yes, there might be trials and difficulties and even the righteous or good people suffer. What Jesus wanted people to realize is that if they had faith in him, if they believed in him, even if something bad were to happen to them here, they have hope of eternal life in Christ. Jesus was always trying to direct people's attention to eternal life. That's why Jesus said, he who believes in me shall not perish, but have life. And people thought, well, what does he mean? I mean, obviously people are still dying. Well, Jesus was talking about eternal death. Often Jesus spoke of this physical death as being asleep. And then at the second coming, you know, the dead are resurrected, the righteous dead are resurrected and they are taken to heaven. So Jesus was helping the disciples to understand that just because something bad happened to a person, it doesn't mean that they're a great sinner. That's what they were taught by the religious leaders. I mean, you have examples in the Bible of righteous people that suffered. You have Job, the whole book. Here is a righteous man that suffers terribly. Jesus was saying, even if you do suffer, there is hope. You will have eternal life if you believe in him. Does that help, Edward? That helps a great deal. Thank you so much. I, I have more clarity on those verses now. All right. Well, thanks for calling. We appreciate it. Our next caller that we have is uh, Sandra listening from New York. Sandra, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you so much. My question is, there are seven plagues, uh, the, uh, and they're found in the book of Revelations, I believe. Yes. Chapter 16. And exactly what keywords do I look out for to uh, describe those seven last plagues? All right. Are you wondering how you can find, find those plagues in, in the Bible? Yes. I want, yes. I, I turn to the book of Revelations. All right. Um, go to Revelation chapter 16 and verse, it starts right in verse 1, but the first plague is in verse 2, and it talks about a terrible sore that comes upon the people that have the mark of the beast. The second plague is the sea turns to blood. Uh, the third plague, the waters, meaning the streams, the rivers, they turn to blood. The fourth plague is an intense heat. It talks about men being scorched with intense heat. The fifth plague is darkness that comes upon the seat of the beast. And then the sixth plague is what's called the drying up of the river Euphrates. Now, there's symbolic aspects to that plague, meaning the support that's given to the spiritual political power in the last days called Babylon. The support that people give begins to dry up as they realize they've been deceived. And then the seventh plague is a great earthquake. And that really occurs when Jesus comes the second time. So you'll read all about that in Revelation chapter 16. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I do the keywords. I thank you so much. I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to explain it to me. Well, thanks for calling. We appreciate that, Sandra. Next caller that we have is Nancy, listening from Cleveland, Ohio. Nancy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, I'm very, very glad I got through. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were able to get through. Thanks for your patience. 
Yeah, so my question was, uh, our church is going in-depth through the book of John. Okay. And um, in, in early John, it talks about when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Mm-hmm. And some of his disciples began to follow Jesus, and that's the first group of disciples. Why didn't John the Baptist follow Jesus as, as a disciple? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I think, first of all, if you read the story of John the Baptist and Jesus, they were cousins. Um, but they grew up separate from each other. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is in the area of Galilee, and John grew up in the wilderness closer to Judea, which is where he ended up baptizing on the Jordan, which is closer to Jerusalem. So they grew up in separate places. They didn't have any contact with each other during those 30 years um, before you know, Christ was baptized and John the Baptist began to preach. And probably the reason for that is that nobody could say that the two of them were working together or had come up with this thing. But they saw what happened to John. They saw when Jesus was baptized and they heard the preaching of Jesus. Uh, Why didn't John follow Jesus? Well, John himself said, I am the lesser light pointing to the greater light. So John realized that he was the one who was to come before Jesus and prepare the way for Christ, and then he was to give way to Jesus and allow Jesus to be the one that draws the people to himself. And I think John felt that his mission would be accomplished if he could draw people's attention to Christ, which he did. Um, He did have some of his disciples follow, but there was still a work that John was doing even after Jesus was baptized and Jesus began to preach. John continued for some time after that, still preaching repentance and baptizing people and pointing people to Jesus. So he still had a ministry that he needed to fulfill. Yeah, I just never understood why he didn't stop his ministry and just follow Jesus. But I guess there's really nothing in the Bible to say, you know, like you said, maybe he was just trying to pull back and and point and just step in the the background. Exactly. He, uh, He was very popular. John the Baptist was a very powerful preacher and he drew large crowds of people. Uh, There was a little bit of controversy that developed between John's disciples and Christ's disciples with reference to um, baptism. Uh, Some of the disciples of Jesus started to baptize later on, and there was a little bit of conflict. And so Jesus withdrew and went up to Galilee. Uh, It probably wouldn't have been a good idea for John and Jesus to try and work together just because of the ministry and the focus of their ministry. And, um, you know, God worked it out that John was to prepare the way and herald the coming of Jesus and then kind of step back and, and let Jesus take the lead. Good, good move. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, of course, he was faithful. Oh, oh yes, yes. It, it just, you know, I, I was telling your assistant when I was on hold, Um, you know, going back to the book of John again, what an amazing book. Our church is really going in depth through it, and I'm catching so much that I never caught before. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Oh, it's a great book. Well, one of the favorite gospel writers is John. And of course, he also wrote Revelation, which is a great book to study, too. And uh, just really great. Thanks for your call, Nancy. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. God bless you. Our next call is Roger, and he's listening in Colorado. Roger, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Pastor. Yes, thanks for your call. Okay, I got a question. Rich man and Lazarus. Some people are telling me that is literal. Okay. And I'm saying, wait a second. If... uh, the bosom of uh, 
if who was the bosom of Abraham? Yeah. That would have to be extremely large. Exactly. Would it not? Right. Well, let me say just a few things about that. You find that in Luke chapter 16 is where you get the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Incidentally, it's in a list of other parables that pretty much everyone recognizes as being parables. In the parable, Jesus teaches a very important uh, principle. Uh, You have a beggar whose name is Lazarus, and then you have a very wealthy man. Um, We don't have his name, but he is a Jew. Uh, The beggar would, in essence, be a Gentile. And the beggar is lying at the rich man's gate, and the rich man ignores him and won't even give him a little morsel of bread. But then in the story, both men die, and the beggar is the one that ends up being rewarded, whereas the rich man, he suffers. And so the rich man says, well, uh, why don't, you know, can you just put a drop of water on my tongue? And of course, the response comes back from Abraham. And again, Abraham is symbolic. And Abraham says, you know, I can't, there's a great gulf fixed and so on. The rich man says, well, I have these brothers. I have five other brothers. Uh, If someone were to rise from the dead and tell them, then they will repent. And then the message comes back and says they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. Now, that's the point. In the power of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man represents the Jewish nation, in particular, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. The beggar represents the Gentiles. Um, The Jews had the wealth of the word of God. They had Moses and the prophets, and yet they hoarded it to themselves, and they refused to believe Jesus. Now, what's amazing about this parable is that the beggar's name is Lazarus, and Jesus says they won't believe even if Lazarus was raised from the dead. Well, there was someone who was raised from the dead whose name was Lazarus, and still the religious leaders refused to believe. By the way, Jesus told the parable, a few days before he resurrected Lazarus. So that's the reason why we have a name associated with this parable. I thank you very much, Pastor. All right, great question. Thanks for calling, Roger. We appreciate that. Our next caller that we have is, uh, I think it's Linda calling from, let's see, uh, where did she go? Linda, Middletown, uh, Connecticut. Is that where it is? Yes. Hi, welcome to the program. Hi. Um, my question is, will, will there be free will, free choice in heaven? Yes, absolutely. Um, love is eternal. The Bible says God is love. So he always has been, he always will be. And in order for there to be true love, there has to be freedom. So God has created all intelligent beings with the freedom of choice. He created his angels with the freedom of choice, and Lucifer chose to rebel against God. He could have chosen to love God, but he chose to rebel against God. And of course, each of us have the choice. We can choose to believe in Christ, or we can choose to reject him. Throughout all eternity, our love will continue to grow as we continually choose Jesus. And we'll be doing that throughout eternity. Not that anyone will want to choose sin because we've been on an earth and we've seen the consequences of sin and rebellion. So throughout all eternity, there won't ever arise rebellion and sin, but we'll still have the freedom to choose Jesus. And we will. We'll be choosing Jesus throughout all eternity. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Good question. Thanks for calling. Next caller. Next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, Jane calling from Michigan. Jane, welcome to the program. Yes, good evening, Pastor Ross. Yes, hi. 
Hi. Uh, my question is that I have some friends of mine who claim that they believe that Mary asked Jesus to perform his first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, uh, turning the water into wine. They say that it was Mary's idea to tell Jesus to turn the water into wine. And my feeling and belief is that according to Scripture, it says that Jesus instructed the disciples to fill the jars with water, that it was his idea to turn water into wine. And my friends insist that, that it was Mary's idea. And, and they also claim, they also claim that Mary had no sin. She was a, she was sinless. And I don't know that the Bible it says that Mary was sinless. Yeah, well, let me address that. First of all, the last question for us, no, Mary was not sinless. She needed a Savior. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's only one person that has lived a perfect life, and that is Jesus. Mary needed Jesus to save her. Now, with reference to the first miracle he performed about turning water into wine, you read about this in John chapter 1. There is this wedding in Cana of Galilee, and it appears from the context of the verse that Mary was at the wedding, and she seemed to have some role in helping to prepare. It was most likely a family member, an acquaintance of Mary and Jesus, because Jesus was invited to the wedding. Mary was probably helping with the food or helping in the preparations, and apparently they ran out of wine or grape juice. And this would have been a big embarrassment to the family if they would have run out, you know, the marriage family, the ones getting married, uh, if they would have run out of grape juice uh, or wine at the wedding. And so according to verse 3, it says, Mary came to Jesus and said they have no wine. Now, we don't know exactly what Mary had in mind when she told Jesus. She was probably hoping that Jesus would help somehow. And then in Christ's response to her, Jesus says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, it appears that Mary was hoping Jesus might proclaim himself as the Messiah. Uh, maybe that would involve doing a miracle. We're not quite sure. But Jesus said to Mary, my hour is not yet come, meaning the time has not come for me to proclaim myself as the Messiah. Nevertheless, Jesus recognized the need and he told the uh, servants to go fill up the water jars with water and then take out some of the water and give it to the governor of the feast. The miracle occurred, and yes, the water became pure grape juice. And I'm sure Mary was amazed and delighted that that took place. So Mary came to Jesus with the problem, but Jesus directed the servants in what to do. Right, okay. All right, yeah, that's what I had believed in the scripture as well, that, that it was Jesus' idea. Yeah. Uh, by the way, by the way, there was one other, if you look at that, Jesus said, my hour is not yet come. Here we have it in the beginning of John. But it's not until the upper room where Jesus meets with his disciples. This is just before his betrayal and before the crucifixion. Then Jesus said to his disciples, my hour is now come. 
So it's kind of interesting that Jesus looked at his hour as really being his betrayal, his crucifixion, and then, of course, his resurrection, his sacrifice that he was going to provide for those who believe in him. Jesus saw that as the great hour or the purpose of his coming. Whereas Mary, probably along with a number of the other you know, Jews at the time, they were looking for a temporal kingdom, and they wanted Jesus to proclaim himself as a king over the Jews, maybe lead a rebellion against the Romans and establish, you know, the Jew or Israel as a great kingdom, a great nation. But of course, Christ's purpose in coming the first time wasn't to establish a literal kingdom, but he was to establish a spiritual kingdom in the hearts and the lives of those who believe in him. And the first miracle that Jesus performed is a good illustration of his mission. He came to turn the water into wine. He came to provide a sacrifice to shed his blood so that we might be saved, so we can become citizens of the kingdom. Thanks for your call, Jane. We appreciate that. And friends, you can hear the music playing in the background. If we didn't get to your question this evening, we going to encourage you to call next week, and we'll try and take as many Bible questions as we can. Until then, God bless. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts, a faith-based ministry located in Sacramento, California. Hello friends, Pastor Doug Batchelor here with Amazing Facts. When Susan's and Michael's whirlwind relationship led to a wedding, they had no idea how hard married life could be. Before they knew it, they were on the stormy path towards divorce. But that's when God led them to an Amazing Facts broadcast, and there they saw the biblical view of marriage as presented in knowing Jesus. Finally, they understood what it meant to love sacrificially like Christ. And today, Susan and Michael are joyfully married, sharing what they learned with others. Now you, friend, have an opportunity to help someone today and to make an eternal difference for more people like Michael and Susan. Your simple investment of faith and amazing facts will keep growing and reaching more people with God's life-changing word. Would you prayerfully consider sending a gift today to help others know Christ and the wonderful truth that you've learned? And it's easy to make a donation. Just visit give.amazingfacts.org or send your gift to P.O. Box 1058, Roseville, California, 95678. You can also give us a call at 877 877- 506-1751. The number again, 877-506-1751. Thank you for tuning in to Bible Answers Live. And don't forget to share with others the amazing Bible facts you have learned here today. Written by the hand of God and spoken with His voice, some words will never fade. Get Pastor Doug Batchelor's 12-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. For life-changing Christian resources, visit afbookstore.com. If you'd like to enhance your study of God's Word, visit our website at www.amazingfacts.org and sign up for our free Bible study course. And make sure to check out our online bookstore at afbookstore.com. 
which offers thousands of inspiring books, DVDs, and more to help you get the most out of God's Word. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Did you enjoy this program? Make sure to tell your family and friends. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live, honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.